Om Sahana Bhavatu Sahano Bunatu Sahaviryam Karavavai Tejasvinavaditamas Tumavid Vishavahai Om Shanti 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 May Brahman protect us. May he guide us and give us strength and right understanding. May love and harmony be with us all. Peace, peace, peace. And good morning. Our topic today is death and reincarnation. And I think it's an important topic because if we look historically, I would say that the two main issues that you find religions dealing with are how to survive life and how to be at peace with death. Those are probably the two main issues that uh, concern humankind and the issues that religion tries to, to help us with. It's interesting, however, that when we look anthropologically, uh, that it seems that it's not so much a fear of death that people have had throughout the uh, millennium, but the fear of the dead. It seemed as though that there was a basic assumption that there was life after death and that you needed to help your ancestors after they passed away and that there were some people that would depart that would not be friendly to you. And so those seemed to be the major issues. But let's uh, first of all take a, a logical approach to this because, of course, there are many people that uh, do not even believe that there is something called life after death. So we have to say, well, there are uh, a couple of possibilities here. But what we observe is that when the body undergoes the process that we call death, there's something that's obviously different about it than it, than it was before. There was a cartoon uh, many years ago with these two people sitting at a table in a western bar, uh, both with guns in their hands, but one of them was slumped over the table and the other one was still sitting there, and it said, the quick and the dead. <laughs> and so there is something different between the person who is alive and the person who is not alive anymore. So the body survives the moment of death, but ultimately decays, of course. But there is something different about it at, after that point. So uh, you could say, what was there that's not there now? There's something different about it. So there was something there that is now gone. So we'll call that the soul. So then you have to think of the possibilities for the soul. Does the soul survive death and just leave, or does it just die as well? So let me uh, now, with those basic questions in mind, relate a few interesting stories that people have told me through the years as I've uh, talked to many of the devotees and friends here. Uh, one person related a, an incident where she received a phone call from a friend whom she talked to rather frequently on the phone, but this time the person sounded a little odd, and she said, you know, I really don't feel well. I feel rather cold, and I think maybe I better go just take a warm bath or something. Later on, uh, she hadn't heard from the friend for a few days, and she inquired and found that the friend had just died that day that she'd received the phone call before she received the phone call. So she had received the phone call after the person had actually passed away. Now, there was another case where some devotees were cleaning up uh, the room of a friend that had passed away, and they felt her presence, and then they noticed that the beds sort of looked like there was somebody sitting on it, that somebody had just sat down on the bed. Uh, another uh, devotee related a story of how she was in a restaurant and, uh, eating a meal and she choked on her food and she couldn't dislodge the food and she began to lose consciousness and then she experienced herself outside the body and she experienced uh, a going down a tunnel towards a bright light and experiencing a feeling of great peace and so forth and then she met her spiritual teachers who told her it wasn't her time and then someone in the restaurant dislodged the food from her uh, windpipe and she re-entered her body. And she said after that time, she had no fear of death. 
In another incident, uh, a uh, devotee was taking care of a friend who was dying of cancer. And in her sleep, she would uh, talk. She would talk in her sleep. And she seemed to have different personalities than when she was awake. In one personality, she spoke beautiful French, which she could barely manage at all in, uh, in the waking state. And in another uh, personality, she seemed to know the Gayatri Mantra. And she was told, that, or she told that she had been instructed to repeat it three times in the morning and three times in the evening. So she used to do it on the ferry boat on her way to and, to and from across a bay. So uh, as these stories go on, you'll see that there, these all seem to indicate that there is something that transcends death and, and is independent of these bodies. Uh, another interesting story was uh, a person that said a relative appeared at the door with some baggage and uh, came in and said, I'm going to come stay with you. And the lady turned around to get ready. She was totally unprepared for this. And when she came back to the door, the lady was gone. The relative was gone. And then she found that this relative had died uh, very recently, and she, but she had just become pregnant. Uh, uh, I think she became pregnant shortly after that, and so she always assumed that this relative had decided to reincarnate as her child. So these types of experiences, I'm sure, are not unique to people in modern times, although you wouldn't be receiving telephone calls <laughs> several hundred years ago. But I'm sure uh, people of all times and places have had these kinds of experiences that have indicated that there's something that survives death. Uh, Sir uh, J.G. Fraser, who is an uh, anthropologist, an early anthropologist, uh, again said that he found that with his studies that in, of early people that they seem to not have any question about the fact that there is life after death, that it seemed as a certainty to them. And so uh, what, they, what he found was that there was a, a strong connection with the, those that had gone on in a way of connecting with their tribal group or their particular social group, and that this seemed to be a, a strong feature among uh, the more uh, primitive people. But of course, this is not always the case. As I said, we do find certain groups of people that have not believed in an afterlife. The Greek atomists, for one, uh, the Indian charvakas, and the modern-day materialists. And none of these groups of people believe that there is anything that survives death and that life is a function of this biological body and our consciousness is a function of this biological body. And those things simply don't survive when the body dies. But there are several questions that we might ask about the soul because we're going to take the majority opinion in this case and assume that something does happen to, uh, or that the soul does survive the moment of the death of the body. So now we have to ask some other questions. It would have been easier just to say that <laughs> there nothing exists and we'd be done already. But we're going to... <laughs> take the, the other approach here so because we have another 45 minutes. <laughs> you might ask, well, all right, if something called the soul survives death, is, is the soul immortal? Just because it survives death doesn't mean it also goes on forever. Maybe it's got a lifespan of its own. Then you have to ask, did the soul exist forever or did it just start when you were born? That's another question. But if you ask those questions, then you have to ask, well, where did, the, where did the soul come from? And how did it get created? And how long does it last? And you might also speculate as to how many souls are there. And are, is there an infinite supply, or is there a fixed number? Does the soul inhabit one body and then exist in some other form? Or does it inhabit one body that lives and dies, and then perhaps take another body that lives and dies, and so forth? Does it inhabit a series of bodies that live and die? And if so, does this go on forever? Or is there some end to that process? So there are all sorts of questions that can be asked. Now, there are all sorts of other questions that can be asked that we're not going to deal with, such as uh, 
what happens when people see ghosts and why they appear in certain clothes and that sort of thing, uh, and why they uh, behave the way they do and how, where they get their energy and so forth. There are all sorts of other interesting topics, but we're not going to cover those. But historically, we could say that at least in Western uh, philosophical terms, we've got four choices. At least those seem to be the ones that people usually pick. And that would be that the soul and the body are inextricably linked so that death marks the beginning of a diminished existence of some sort, so that you sort of exist in a shadowy type existence, but not uh, a higher existence. And that's really the kind of idea you find when you look at uh, the Greek's idea of Hades, or the even the Jewish idea of a Sheol, that it's, it's this sort of a, another realm, but it's not like our heaven at all, or a Brahmaloka, or something of that nature. The other possibility is that the soul and body are inextricably linked, and although they're parted at death, they come together again uh, at some other point in time, and this would be, say, the the viewpoint of early Christianity, where there's a resurrection of the body at some point. And then you might say that the soul is divine and immortal, but it's housed in an imperishable, or, or in a perishable vehicle uh, of the physical body. And that really is very similar uh, to the Vedantic idea, and also the, the, the Platonists that followed the philosophy of Plato really had that similar idea. And then the last one would be the materialist, which was that the soul is entirely dependent on the body and perishes at death. So, as I said, our, our general idea is that the soul is divine and immortal, and it is just housed in this particular perishable vehicle for the time. And these ideas are really expressed quite clearly in our scriptures. So we're going to look at some of the quotes from the scriptures that talk about uh, the ideas of birth, death, rebirth, and the nature of the soul. So regarding the immortality of the soul, or our true nature, uh, being one with Brahman and so forth, we find the following passages. Brahman is that which is immutable and independent of any cause by itself. When we consider Brahman as lodged within the individual being, we call it the Atman. The creative energy of Brahman is that which causes all existences to come into being. The nature of the relative world is mutability. The nature of the individual person is his consciousness of ego. I alone am God who preside over action here in this body. Oh, I should have told you this is from the Bhagavad Gita, so the I refers to uh, Krishna referring to the ultimate reality. Again, another quote from the Gita, For I am Brahman within this body, life immortal, that shall not perish. I am the truth and the joy forever. Bodies are said to die, but that which possesses the body is eternal. Know this Atman, unborn, undying, never ceasing, never beginning, deathless, birthless, unchanging, forever. How can it die the death of the body? Part of myself is the God within every creature, keeps that nature eternal, yet seems to be separate, putting on mind and senses five, the garment made of Prakriti. Now regarding reincarnation, we find again in the Gita, worn-out garments are shed by the body. Worn-out bodies are shed by the dweller within the body. New bodies are donned by the dweller like garments. Death is certain for the born. Rebirth is certain for the dead. Regarding the reason we are stuck on the, the wheel of birth, death, and rebirth, and how we get unstuck, is answered in the following passages. First, from the Viveka Trudamani. Because you are associated with ignorance, the supreme Atman within you appears to be in bondage to the non-Atman. This is the sole cause of the cycle of birth, births and deaths. The flame of illumination, which is kindled by discrimination between Atman and non-Atman, will burn away the effects of ignorance down to their very roots. And in the Svetasvatara Upanishad, it says, This vast universe is a wheel. Upon it are all the creatures 
that are subject to birth, death, and rebirth. Round and round it turns and never stops. It is the wheel of Brahman. Along, as long as the individual self thinks uh, that it is separate from Brahman, it revolves upon the wheel in bondage to the laws of birth, death, and rebirth. But when, through the grace of Brahman, it realizes its identity with him, it revolves upon the wheel no longer, and it achieves immortality. <clears throat> so we, we get the idea that there is this uh, something that is eternal that we would, for convenience, call the soul, and that it is subject to birth and death and rebirth, but that there is a way of getting out of this cycle. From the Katu Upanishad, it says, if a man fails to attain Brahman before he casts off his body, he must again put on a body in the world of created things. But then in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, it says, when all the desires which once entered into his heart have been driven out by divine knowledge, the mortal attaining to Brahman become immortal. And in the Gita again, it says, the doer of good deeds whose bad karma is exhausted are freed from the delusion that the relative world is real. And at the hour of death, when a man leaves his body, he must depart with his consciousness absorbed in me. Then he will be united with me, be certain of that. Whenever a person, whatever a person remembers at the last, uh, when, the, when leaving the body, that will be realized, and in here and then the hereafter, because that will be what the mind has dwelt on most constantly in that particular life. Therefore, remember me at all times and do your duty. And speaking of people with evil tendencies, it says, they are addicted to sensual pleasure, made restless by their many desires and caught in the net of delusion they fall into the filthy hell of their own evil minds. And it is said that hell has three doors, lust, rage, and greed. And another quote says, when he casts from him vanity, violence, pride, lust, anger, and all his possessions, totally freed from the sense of ego and tranquil of heart, that person is ready for oneness with Brahman. And the person who dwells united with Brahman, calm in mind, not grieving, not craving, regarding all people with equal acceptance, that person loves me most dearly. Now, of course, Ramakrishna also referred to karma and reincarnation frequently. And he said that one is aware of pleasure and pain, birth and disease and grief, as long as one is identified with the body. All these belong to the body alone and not to the soul. After the death of the body, perhaps God carries one to a better place. It is like the birth of a child after the pain of delivery. Attaining self-knowledge, one looks at pleasure and pain, birth and death, as a dream. Now, the, in, in terms of the idea of karma and how that affects our lives and, and our reincarnations and so forth, Sri Ramakrishna used to like to tell the story of the person who had prepared an elaborate worship uh, in the forest, and this was being observed by another passerby. And just at that time when he was just about to begin, this tiger comes bounding out of the forest, and the the man that was observing manages to escape up a tree, but the man who'd prepared everything was killed by the tiger. So the, the person, once the tiger is gone, decides, well, he comes down out of the tree and sees this wonderful preparation for puja, and he said, well, I might as well take advantage of this, and so he starts doing the puja, and immediately gets a vision of, of God. <laughs> and... Uh, he says, you know, I, I'm really not very prepared, and I, I'm just doing this, and the other person did all the preliminary stuff. Why am, why am I receiving this wonderful benefit of it? And they said, well, you had done this all in previous lifetimes, and, and this is just the final uh, uh, fruition of all your results from the past. So he referred to these things. He also talked about 
uh, some of his uh, direct disciples. He said that Swami Vedananda had been a great yogi in a past life. Swami Vivekananda was one of the seven rishis. Yogananda had been Arjuna. Swami Premananda uh, had been a form of Sri Radha. Uh, Balam Basu and M belonged to the inner circle of Chaitanya. Girish Ghost was one of the attendants of Shiva and so forth. And so there's this uh, general acceptance of this idea that uh, people have lived lives in the past and that those lives are somehow reflected in their, their current life, that they have certain tendencies that show through. So the simple Vedanta explanation, you could say, trying to summarize all of these scriptural passages and the insights of the great seers and saints, as well as just the common sense, everyday kind of knowledge that people get, where they get to have little experiences of people that have passed on, uh, or they have dreams of people that have passed on and so forth. Uh, so s- summarizing all that, the simplest explanation that we've come up with is to say that Really, Brahman is the ultimate reality. It's, that, it's the power behind the entire universe, and it is manifesting as this entire universe. And it is appearing as all these many souls, all these many jivas which have taken on human bodies uh, to experience things in this particular plane of existence. So we humans experience ourselves as individuals, but we also sense that we have this immortal soul. Why, while in our bodies, we perform the various actions in this plane of existence, and we find ourselves in this world that seems to generally follow the laws of cause and effect. And so that actions that we do seem to have results. But every once in a while, there's, there are things that are hard to explain where we can't any reason why we would be getting particular uh, results in our life or certain events happening to us. It seems like some bad people seem to get away with things and good people seem to have bad things happen to them. Uh, Some people are born with lots of uh, talents and benefits and other people have to struggle through through life with, with less. And so the theory of karma in previous lives helps to explain that that we've had lives with other types of existences and we've made either good or not so good advantage of those circumstances. And so then we get reborn in order to, uh, in circumstances that help us to fulfill the karmic lessons that we need to learn that we've stored up from previous lifetimes. And so this process of taking on a series of bodies to get this done is called reincarnation. And it is said we are all bound to this world of birth, death, and rebirth until we've learned all of our karmic lessons and fulfilled enough desires so that we realize that fulfilling desires doesn't really (laughs) help a lot. And uh, we eventually get off of this uh, wheel of birth and death and rebirth. So that is usually said to be the ultimate goal of life, to uh, realize that your desires are really never going to be completely fulfilled, and when you do, that's not really very fulfilling after all. And that uh, we are really, in some sense, divine and immortal beings. Depending on your particular school of Vedanta, you can put a different spin on exactly your relationship with Brahman. But this is the the general idea. And it is uh, believed that if a person experiences their oneness with God in this lifetime, then they're liberated at the moment of death. If they're very close to that, if they've lived a very spiritual life, but they haven't actually realized their oneness with God, they may, uh, in the afterlife, uh, be guided there by their spiritual teacher, that your spiritual teachers will appear to you and help you through, and you, you can get gradual liberation after you have, have passed away. And if, if not, if there's still some unfilled, unfulfilled desires or unfulfilled things that you feel that you need to do, or if the Lord feels he needs you in his play, uh, then you take on a, another body in circumstances that will either help you fulfill the desires you haven't fulfilled or work off uh, karmas that you haven't worked off and so forth. But ultimately, in, in our general school of thought, the idea that you could possibly work off all your karmas is, is 
considered a bit impossible because no matter what you do, there's always good and bad results. So you can't ultimately win just doing it by karma alone, that ultimately it's God's grace that puts you over the, uh, the barrier of getting out of this cycle of birth, death, and rebirth and into the everlasting uh, peace of being one with Brahman. So this individuality of sorts is an, is an illusion, and its nature is really one with Brahman, and that's what we're trying to explain. So when we're trying to explain what happens here in this particular framework, there's always going to be some fuzzy edges because it's an illusion. <laughs> when you're talking about a magic show or a dream or uh, an optical illusion, the reality is is what it is, and what you're appearing, what what appears to be, you can make up an explanation, but it's not going to be ironclad because it's not actually what's happening. But we're going to try anyway, so because we like to try to figure out what's going on here. So, if you really like more details about how this death process works and what happens in between lifetimes and so forth. Probably the best uh, source is the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which has a very detailed analysis of this. And a man named Ken Wilbur gives a very interesting uh, comparison with what's in that book with what different religious traditions teach. So that's, that's also another source of that. But we're not going to go into that today. But we're going to mention a few other things which sort of reinforce and correlate with what we've been saying. And then we're going to talk about how that relates to our particular spiritual practices. Well, one, uh, one set of information that we can look at is the near-death experience that many people have, ex- have had. And perhaps you've known somebody, as I related, somebody who had had that type of experience. And there are whole books on these now where uh, they've gone, they've interviewed people that have had these experiences. And they have certain features in common. Uh, one of them is that they f- seem to come in contact with a, some sort of higher spiritual presence. And that uh, spiritual presence usually takes the form of a spiritual teacher or a sp- historical spiritual person or a deity of some sort, or perhaps uh, an angelic type of uh, person. Another element that seems to come up frequently is the life review, that the whole person's uh, life seems to be encapsulated in a very, very short time. And some describe it as going uh, fast forward all the way through their life, and others describe it as going backwards all the way through their life. And some say that it just sort of happens all at once, and you can't really put a timeline on it. And a few of them who are Obviously, all these people that are reporting it were destined to come back. So some of them uh, experience a future view. So it's the whole timeline, and they see some, some things that are happening in the future or some possibilities of what could happen in the future. There's also a sense of judging, and sometimes it's themselves that are judging or somebody else that's judging. Uh, a third common element is that of expanded consciousness, that they are more conscious when they are out of the body than when they're in the body. And, and in fact, they describe how their consciousness shrinks as, they, as they're brought back into the body. Many of them speak, uh, or speak about this, the tunnel of light experience and a voyage into uh, a heavenly realm and so forth. So these are some common elements, and usually in the reports you find two or three of these remembered. Now, perhaps they've experienced all of them, or perhaps they've only gone so far in the process, and so they've only had a a couple of them. It's hard to know exactly what's going on. But those are the ideas that seem to to happen. Now, another thing that's sometimes described is that it seems to be... uh, extreme attachments and desires which bring people back in or a sense of duty or the spiritual guide telling them that they have something that's unfinished. That seems to be what, what brings them back. Another thing which seems common is that the light is so intense it's, it's 
overwhelming and almost, uh, it's like trying to look at the sun and it's, it hurts. <laughs> and so this is also a, a problem and sometimes there's a, a feeling that you want to shrink away from the light because it's too bright. And, but the spiritual guide is there to help you with this process. see where we want to go from here. All right, so the next thing I'd like to look at is uh, people that have experienced uh, contact with people that have passed away. And you're probably all familiar with the story of Holy Mother. When she was grieving uh, after Sri Ramakrishna had passed away, he appeared to her and said, why are you grieving? It is just as though I'd stepped from one room to another. And apparently, Holy Mother's not alone. Uh, this is a fairly common occurrence, although it's usually not quite so vivid. Frequently it will happen in a dream or they'll hear a, a, some sort of voice or feel some sort of presence. But in any case, several scientists have done surveys to find out exactly how frequent this is and whether it does occur more frequently with grieving uh, spouses. The first one was done in Japan, and the surveyor assumed that since the Japanese had a very strong uh, sense of ancestor worship built into their culture, that it might be a fairly frequent occurrence. It's interesting that most of these researchers didn't really have a strong belief in an afterlife, and they explained it all away in psychological terms because it was part of the grieving process. Uh, it was very interesting. But anyway, uh, this particular survey uh, surveyed 54 widows and interviewed 24 of the 54. But the net result was that about 90% of them reported some sort of contact with the deceased spouse. So other people got interested in this and wanted to know, is it just because the Japanese have this ancestor worship idea, or is this more general? And so another researcher did it with a a little village area in Wales, and he tried to get 100% sampling of every single person that had experienced the loss of a spouse. And he got pretty close. I think he estimated that he was about 90, gotten about 95% of the people uh, surveyed. And he also found that a large percentage, I think it was about 60%, had some contact with the deceased spouse. The percentage was a little higher in the first six months, but was very frequent in the first decade, and even extended in the second decade if the spouse you know, obviously lasted that long. So uh, it seemed more common in people with very happy uh, marriages and with spouses that had children. Those seemed to up the chances of having contact with the deceased spouse. So then right here at, uh, at USC in the 1970s, another study was done. And again, they reported about 60% of people reporting a, a presence of someone who had died. And, and in this time, they included not only spouses, but also other family members and so forth and close uh, people. So when you, when you put it all together, you get a, a, a well over 50% of the, the people, especially of the women, slightly lower percent with men, having some contact or feeling that they had had some contact with someone who had passed on. It was either an intense dream or an actual vision or hearing a voice or something very similar to the kinds of things that I described at the beginning of the lecture. Uh, but his conclusion was that he didn't believe that they were really engaging in conversations with the dead, but that the experience of grief caused them to create a reality where the deceased person had communicated with them. Well, from our perspective, the whole thing here is a, an apparent reality. It's all, it's all some sort of an apparent reality. So this... It's just another type of apparent reality that we're dealing with, and I don't see any reason why we should make it less real than our ordinary experiences. Now, the, the other interesting question, which actually will take a much longer discussion, and again, we won't get into too deeply here, is this idea of individuality and what comprises an individual and what is the nature of our consciousness. 
Since most of us do not remember our past lives, the question is, what is it that's reincarnating? And is the nature of our consciousness such that the memories are or are not stored in it? And Ken Wilber actually says that he doesn't think that the memories are carried over from one to the other, that the soul is simply the collection of uh, wisdom and knowledge and uh, that's what you carry on from one life to the next, what, everything that you learn, your maturity as a soul, and so forth. And that carries on from one life to the, to the next. But I'm not sure I agree with that. It doesn't seem to explain why a few rare people actually do remember their past lives. Now, when you get into psychological techniques there is some debate as to how actual some of those experiences are and whether it's you know, fabricated out of people's readings and people's wishful thinking and that type of thing. And that certainly is the case, in, I think, in, in some instance, instances. But there are other cases that are just you can't really explain away that way. So there's got to be some way that memories could be uh, carried over from one life to the next. And I think the best theory on that is that the the body is a vehicle for, through which consciousness expresses itself. But when you look at the near-death experience that people have, it appears that when the consciousness is in the body, it's actually less expressed than it is when it is outside the body. When, the, when these people experience themselves as outside their body, they feel that they are more conscious, that they can simply think their, themselves anywhere. They can read people's thoughts. They don't actually hear them. They just know them. Uh, they can see things that they couldn't see if they were in a body and so forth. So it seems as though consciousness that's not confined to a body is actually uh, more developed. It's not like the Greek idea of Hades where it's sort of a shadowy consciousness. It's a more intense consciousness. And that it's simply because when this consciousness gets reincarnated into a body, it's having to work through a new confined vehicle, and these things are simply not remembered. After all, we, we barely can remember what happened yesterday, <laughs> much less what happened to us. When we, almost nobody remembers much before the age of five. Uh, it's fairly rare to have too many memories before the age of five. And so I don't think it's terribly surprising that we don't remember past lives except under certain circumstances. And it's interesting that when you look at these, uh, these studies, the ones that spontaneously remember are usually pretty young. And those are the people that seem to have these remembrances, unless they're under some sort of psychological technique where they're deliberately trying to elicit these kinds of uh, memories. So this is called the transmissive theory that the consciousness is not produced by the brain, but it's transmitted through the brain, and that actually restricts what can be experienced. So I think there has to be some, some sort of memories. Otherwise, you can't explain talents either. If you can't remember anything, uh, how do, do people express talents uh, so spontaneously when they're young? And why, why do we have child prodigies and that sort of thing? People that can seem to be able to just do things without having studied them. Uh, when we were in, uh, in school as, as young kids, there was a, uh, one student who was going to our school who was in the 12th grade at age six. And his parents said that uh, he didn't read uh, or he didn't talk for, I don't know, the first two years, and they thought he was retarded. And then he started to read. At age two, he just started to read. before, he, So he hadn't talked before that. And he just started to read. And he was just this phenomenally bright, bright kid that went through school twice as fast as anybody else. So uh, you just can't explain that or explain how somebody can know another language in a dream or in a, an altered state of consciousness like hypnosis or something. So I think this transmissive theory is probably the, the best uh, explanation. And there's some, some very interesting uh, case studies that I think I'll relate a few of these to you. Uh, one was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That was the creator of, Sherman, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. He was actually at first a skeptic of the popular spiritualist movements of his day. 
until a series of events occurred with a young girl that he and his wife were nursing. The girl amused herself with automatic writing, which uh, the Doyles at first assumed were just messages from her unconscious mind. I mean, this was sort of the beginnings of psychology theories and so forth, and so uh, people would naturally turn to those kinds of ideas. But then one day she wrote, it's terrible and will have a great influence on the war. Now, this was during World War I. And it turned out that the Lusitania was sunk by a German sub and the Americans entered World War I. Then on another day, Lily, this, the girl that was being taken care of, began to write uh, in a handwriting that Doyle recognized as his brothers-in-laws who had died sometime before. And so he started asking questions of Lily uh, as though she were the brother-in-law to see if this really was the brother-in-law. The replies were so accurate that he became convinced that the brother-in-law was actually still somehow alive in some sort of afterlife and communicating through Lily through this automatic writing. Now, an example of an interesting out-of-body experience that also has some demonstrable proof to it was a case where a patient that we're going to call Maria had been brought to a hospital having had a severe heart attack. But she was young and in fairly good health, and she survived the cardiac arrest. But then she entered another cardiac arrest. And so the nurses uh, were came in to, to try to get her revived and so forth. But afterwards, she reported having this strange experience. She said, the strangest thing happened when the doctors and nurses were working on me. I found myself looking down from the ceiling on them working on my body. She then told me that she had been distracted by something over the emergency room driveway and found herself outside, as if she had thought herself out over the emergency room driveway. Now, this is the nurse reporting this. And then she goes on. She said, I thought my way up uh, to a ledge and found an, uh, a, sh a shoe with a shoelace on a tennis shoe. And she said, could you go find and see if there's actually a tennis shoe on a ledge somewhere outside the hospital because I want to verify to see if I was actually experiencing what I thought I was experiencing. So the nurse went around and peered through all the windows of the hospital until she finally found, in great difficulty, uh, she found a tennis shoe sitting on the ledge and from a place where it would be very, very difficult for anybody to have seen this. She, had, she worked really hard to find this. And so the way she had described it in previously indicated that she had actually been seeing it from an outside standpoint and not from inside the, uh, the hospital. So she felt that was concrete evidence that her consciousness was not in the body, but it was out, outside the body. All right. There, there's a, uh, another interesting case where they, <clears throat> uh, an estate was being distributed after someone had passed away, and the will that they found, uh, written in 1905, seemed to lopsidedly bequeath the estate uh, to the third son, leaving almost everybody else in the family disinherited, which they, they all found a little bit odd, but nobody could contest it. But... <clears throat> Uh, in 1925, so this see, the man died in 1921. The will was written in 1905. So about four years later, the uh, soul of this person seemed to appear to one of his sons. Uh, the son reported that he was visited by uh, his father and that uh, he couldn't explain what it was. It, he didn't seem to be dreaming. He wasn't quite sure whether he was awake or, or asleep. But uh, he came a couple of times. And one time he said, uh, you'll find my will in my overcoat pocket. So the, the son searched for the overcoat and found that it was in possession of another brother. But they didn't find a will there. All they found was a note in it that said, read the 27th chapter of Genesis in Daddy's old Bible. So then they had to try to find the Bible. Turned out the mother still had the Bible, and it was up in the attic, and they opened it up, 
and they found uh, in the book of Genesis an, a later will written in 1919 that had distributed the property equally. So this seemed to be a, a fairly uh, substantial case where you could verify that someone had received information that they had not known before from a deceased relative. Usually the arguments by materialists are that uh, people are picking things up psychically, that the psychic phenomenon are fairly well demonstrated, and so even materialists have to accept the fact that people can be clairvoyant or uh, they can have clear audience experiences and that type of thing, and people can read each other's minds and so forth. Even though it's rare, uh, those things do happen, and they have been demonstrated. So they usually try to explain this type of thing uh, as someone having uh, some sort of psychic experience and they're, they're reading a person's mind. But it's a little difficult to understand how you read a mind of a dead person unless that consciousness is still around somewhere. And none of these family members seem to have known about this or they would have all looked for it because they'd all been disinherited. <laughs> they would have had strong motivation to have uh, remembered this. So... Uh, there's, there's some interesting cases like this. And, and another one that, again, had some very, very specific details uh, that could be verified happened when someone was going through a psychological regression, where they're going through a regression session, and they kept experiencing themselves uh, as a, let's see if I get the story straight here, uh, seemed to be in a military sur surroundings, and yet they didn't seem to be a military person themselves. They seemed to be some sort of priest or something. And the other confusing thing was that they seemed to be in, like, Ireland or England or someplace like that, but all the soldiers seemed to be Spanish. And he noticed that he had, a, a, in this experience, that he had this, this ring on with these initials on it. So after he had visited Ireland and so forth and, and then had this kind of deja vu that this must be the place where he had experienced it, he researched the history of the place and found out that indeed that this, uh, in one of the wars between England and, and Spain that the Spanish had uh, invaded this particular fort and there, there was a priest there that had initials on it, and the whole story gets a little complicated, but uh, he was able to verify that there actually was a priest with these initials that was involved in that fort disaster where the, the Spanish had uh, conquered them, and they had, plan they had promised to set them free, and they hadn't. They, they just massacred the whole bunch of them. Then the, uh, the most interesting case of a young child remembering their past life was uh, Bishan Chand in, in India. And in this particular case, the, uh, at about one and a half, Bishan began asking questions about a town about 50 miles away uh, that the rest of the family really didn't know anything about. And he kept telling them about this place, and he kept insisting that he'd had a life there and that his family was, you know, probably still there, and that, uh, you know, he, he felt that that was his real family and not the one he was in, and it was a much wealthier family. And so it, he felt that this was, you know, just not the kind of lifestyle that he was, was used to. And there were all sorts of details that they were of, of this other life that they were able to later verify that this uh, young child was able to... Um, recount before visiting the town and then they went and visited the town and actually demonstrated that a lot of these things were true. So how does this all relate to our, our spiritual life? Well, it, it seems as though, that, as the Gita says, that whatever you dwell upon most in your, uh, in your lifetime, that is what comes to you at, at the moment of death. Now certainly from the standpoint of this life review, you could think that if if, you've, if you're having a review of your whole life instantly, <laughs> then the thing that's going to be the most prominent is the thing that you've thought of uh, the most often. And the other thing that's interesting, I think, is that the spiritual guide or teacher or personality or whatever that appears is the one that you've focused on. And that it's, it's not a an easy journey. You'd think that you'd be drawn toward this wonderful peace and love and light, but it's actually very difficult 
to continue to hold on to that light because of its intensity. And you really have to be attached to your spiritual teacher. So that's where bhakti yoga comes in, where you have to develop this total love, faith, and devotion for your spiritual teacher or your your chosen ideal or your favorite image of God so that you can cling to that and not be frightened away from, from continuing that spiritual journey. All right, so the other thing is, of course, that the, uh, you, you want to lessen your desires. And as Ramakrishna said, you, if they're simple little desires, get them over with. <laughs> okay? But don't get into the entangling ones and try to lessen your sense of desire and realize that, uh, yeah, it's okay to, you know, if you feel like you need a cup of tea, then go have a cup of tea. But don't get so attached to something that you're going to end up having to come back to, to experience another lifetime to fulfill desires. And the other part of, of our spiritual practice is the way we try to calm our minds. Because what we really should say is we're trying to calm our brain because our brains are the vehicle for our consciousness. And it's the way the brain processes things actually gets in the way of our experiencing a fuller consciousness. And so the more that you can practice experiencing a fuller consciousness without the brain being busy, <laughs> the, the better you will be able to handle this experience at the moment of death, where your experience leaves the body and has this more expanded feeling of consciousness. So all of our spiritual practices are really not only ways to help us lead this life, but they're all really designed to help us in that transition period and hopefully uh, bring us to the point where our, this in-between state will allow us to let go of all of these things and be free of the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. So we want to uh, cling to our chosen ideal. We want to diminish our sense of ego and our separateness because there's going to be this feeling of merging into an infinite ocean of light or peace or love. Uh, so you need to be prepared for that. You need to be uh, geared so that your ego consciousness isn't going to try to contract again. That's the danger. You want to diminish all your attachments so that you're not thinking, oh, gee, I've, I've left my family and who's going to take care of the, uh, you know, the, the business and who's going to do this and who's going to do that and I never finished the book I wanted to write. <laughs> you know, let all that stuff go, okay? And you want to calm the, uh, practice calming the mind so that the, the mind can get used to being in that expanded state. So I think those are, our, are the prime things that looking at this phenomenon of death and dying and the, the experiences that people have had when they've gone partially through that process and the experiences and, and teachings of the great enlightened souls that we get through all of our scriptures, which uh, indicate how this process happens. And it's interesting, again, that on this judging idea that some people feel it's themselves that are, are being the judge. And other times that judging is projected outside of themselves into another being. And so, again, you have to be at peace at the way you've lived and uh, realize that uh, you've done the best you can. And so don't be judgmental about yourself in a negative way and realize that you really are one with Brahman, and that's your destiny. <laughs>